Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the show, I welcome Chris Rinch. Chris is a biotech innovator who developed the proprietary technology in MitoPure, a supplement clinically shown to improve mitochondrial health, muscle strength, and endurance in human beings. Now, many of us remember from biology class that the mitochondria are the power plants of the cell. But as we'll soon learn, these little jelly bean shaped organelles do a lot more than produce ATP. They are essential to so many processes from apoptosis to gene expression to neurotransmitter production. MitoPure found its origin in a study where Chris and his team observed a decline of the mitochondrial function in the muscle tissue of individuals experiencing mobility issues. So they asked the question, how can we reverse the decline of mitochondrial function and boost the recycling of damaged mitochondria? As it turns out, there is a compound in pomegranates that do just that, but it is not advisable from a blood sugar perspective and from other perspectives to drink the amount of pomegranate juice that you need to get a sufficient volume of those compounds. And that is how and why MitoPure was born. But before we dive figuratively into the mitochondria and the science behind the compound known as urolithin A, here is a brief reminder about our commune course platform. Now, if you're interested in functional medicine and integrative medicine, with fantastic doctors like Mark Hyman and Sarah Gottfried, Kara Fitzgerald, Jolene Brighton, and Roger Schwelt on topics such as gut health, sleep, immunity, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition. Well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. Okay, without further delay, I present to you, Chris Rinch. Okay. Chris Rinch, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Great to be with you, man. Hey, great to be with you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, well, we had the opportunity to meet in person at a party in Commune Topanga when our pomegranate trees were in full splendor, uh, I remember, in late yeah, October. It was amazing. It was amazing, yeah. And uh, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, I, I believe we were the last one standing at that party um, which <laughs> probably speaks to our mutual bioenergetics, if you will. Exactly. Our mitochondria um, were working full yes, speed. Yes, they were. Yes, uh, probably with some extra enhancement. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. I've been thinking about it. And really, you know, just the state of being alive is contingent on our ability to produce energy. In fact, on some kind of philosophical level, we're just kind of animated information 
kind of links in this continuous chain of energy transfer. Um, but this ability for us to make energy rests strangely on this five micrometer oval organelle uh, known as the mitochondria. And it's, uh, it's so cool that the mitochondria has really become more and more part of the, uh, the zeitgeist, if you will. Um, and uh, and you, got, you guys are on the tip of the spear in terms of creating more fluency around this strange little purple bacteria that got engulfed by an archaea some two billion years ago. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about the history uh, of this organelle. But uh, I'm excited to jump into all the roles of the mitochondria with you, its relationship to aging, uh, and of course, how we can upregulate up the functionality of our mitochondria, um, specifically as it pertains to muscle function, but also as it pertains to, to brain health. Um, and everything that you guys are doing uh, at Timeline and with MitoPure. So excited to jump in. So maybe at the very, very, very basic top level, um, what are mitochondria? Mitochondria are, are the basically the, the power plants inside of all of our cells. And so essentially what they're doing is producing the energy, the ATP that is needed for all of our cells to function normally for all of the different biochemical reactions to take place inside of the cell. And so they're essentially this, this battery that we need um, to make our cells function and, and work properly. Um, without functioning mitochondria and, and with a decline in mitochondria uh, number or, or functionality, Basically, there's less energy inside of the cells, so less of the cells' functions can take place, and and so that sort of transmits itself not only through a cellular level, but on sort of a whole tissue level and on an organ level, and so you have a decline in functionality um, on at the organ level and also at, at on the whole human body. So uh, there, it's very important for um, you know for us to. To function properly and and um, yeah, we need that energy. Yeah, and so just break it down from a, almost a very basic level. Mitochondria exist inside the human cell. Is, is that correct? And is there a certain prevalence of mitochondria in certain cells versus other cells? And how many sure. mitochondria are are in a cell? Sure. Well, yes, mitochondria are located inside of the cytoplasm of the cell and, and certain tissues require more energy than others. And so there, there tends to be more mitochondria and a higher uh, density of mitochondria. And so um, particular skeletal muscle, which uses a lot of energy, uh, as well as cardiac muscle and, and even the brain, there, there's, there's, there's quite a high density of mitochondria. And are we talking 200 mitochondria per cell, 2,000 mitochondria per cell, or am I not even in the right ballpark? <laughs> well, I, I think you're, it, it really depends on, on, the, on the tissue, but you're, it's not in the tens of mitochondria. It's more in the hundreds and the thousands of mitochondria, and that, and that just depends on the size of the cell, too. So, um, yeah. Yeah. They're very small, so you can pack a lot in. Yeah, and they tend to cluster, right? So right. you know, they we do, we yeah. 
I remember from biology class, you know, generally you'd see this mitochondria as kind of this jelly bean like uh, image yes. inside the cytoplasm of the cell. Sure. But in reality, uh, they tend to, to cluster in, uh, in groups. Is that right? Yeah, they do. You do t tend to find them sort of stuck together. We've we've looked at um, transmission electron mic uh, microscopic uh, images uh, in some tissues, and you can see uh, lots of mitochondria kind of stick, st sticking together. And you can also see the the structure of those uh, mitochondria, the um, the cristae inside, and and how that cristae uh, formation changes uh, with time and during aging as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the mitochondria in some ways are, are where food and oxygen meet on some level. Yes. So people are somewhat familiar with metabolism and digestion yep. and how macronutrients get um, absorbed into the bloodstream and then brought to the cell. Sure. You know, glucose, for example, gets ushered to the cell by insulin yes. and yes. then goes through glycolysis and then eventually into the mitochondria for a couple of the last couple of stages of cellular respiration. Yes. Can maybe get into that. And then, you know, oxygen is also obviously comes through, through the lungs and brought through the body, uh, through hemoglobin in the blood and then transferred out, uh, also into the cells. And it seems like the marriage of glucose and nutrients that we're eating for energy production and the oxygen that we're respirating meet and have a tryst at some level at the mitochondria. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it is. I mean, you have the, you're, you're breathing in your oxygen and it's basically for the mitochondria. And then, you know, you're eating all these foods and the fatty acids are then transformed um, through, through the mitochondria into ATP, through the electron transport chain. Yeah. So mitochondria, the uh, the catchphrase that most people use is, you know, they're the powerhouse or the power plant of the cell. Yes. But uh, but mitochondria are also involved in a lot of other functions as well. Do you mind touching on on, on some of the other roles that the mitochondria play? Sure. Um, so mitochondria are also involved in in various signaling pathways inside of the cell, and so uh, mitochondria can. Uh, trigger uh, the the cell down a pathway of of cell death as well if the mitochondria are uh, are significantly damaged and so uh, it, that's it's an important aspect that we we don't think about of all of the different uh, roles of the mitochondria in the cell although providing the energy and having proper functioning mitochondria uh, is is essentially clear to is essentially uh, key to have all of these uh, these processes functioning um, normally. Yeah, we would not be moving our lips talking to each other right now if we weren't unlocking uh, the chemical energy in, in food through this incredible process, and then uh, being able to transfer that energy into mechanical or kinetic energy, or et, et cetera. Sure. Um, so, you know, you brought up something interesting around cell death or uh, apoptosis, or as it 
specifically pertains to mitochondria. When mitochondria get damaged, uh, there is this process of called mitophagy. Um, so, but perhaps we can explore why mitochondria start to become dysfunctional in the first place. So, as I understand it, you know, part of cellular respiration of essentially the creation of ATP, sure. a byproduct of that is the production of some free radicals or reactive oxygen species that can at some point damage the cell and the mitochondria. Can you pull on that thread a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, you know, during the throughout the electron transport chain, uh, as you're converting your your fatty acids into ATP, essentially you you generate a lot of reactive oxygen species, and and in the process, these reactive oxygen species they will they will act at the level of the cell membrane or the the mitochondrial membrane uh, to damage that, and and as you're causing the damage to the mitochondria. Uh, during the process of, of making ATP, essentially inside of the cells, you, you have a process by which you are taking the mitochondria and you're repairing the mitochondria. And, and you alluded to it earlier, this idea of mitophagy, it's mitophagy, sort of the cell uh, eating the damaged mitochondria. And so uh, essentially what happens is that the damaged part of the mitochondria is butted off from the healthy part of the mitochondria, uh, or if it's a, an entire mitochondria, it will be targeted on this pathway in which there will be, um, it will be engulfed by, uh, and then digested into its component parts. And so these component parts can then be uh, essentially recycled inside of the cell and go into creating uh, new mitochondria and growing and growing our existing healthy mitochondria, and so it's a this is very it's a cycle uh, that's ongoing, and it's and it's not just sort of happening at one time, but it's a continuous process, uh, and the cells uh, need this in order to still stay uh, bio, you know, say functional from a bioenergetic uh, perspective. Mm, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I mean, we we often hear a lot about autophagy, um, and that can be associated with uh, fasting and the triggering of certain cellular pathways, and autophagy is a more general term, uh, technically meaning self-eating, but uh, really referring to kind of the breakdown of dysfunctional cells into their amino acid component parts, and then it's what's amazing is that then the body can reuse or recycle those component amino acids for the rebuilding of new proteins, um, which is just uh, always boggles my mind, the kind of foundational intelligence of, of the body there. Um, but that's, uh, that's also taking place at the mitochondrial level with mitophagy. Is that right? Yes, that's, that's right. So mitophagy is uh, really a sort of a, a subset uh, almost of autophagy. As as you were mentioning, autophagy is a, the term to describe the general recycling of uh, proteins, of aggregated proteins or damaged organelles inside of the cell, and and it is really quite miraculous that inside of cells you have this process that is uh, basically a cleaning process that enables the cells and all the cells' machinery to stay functional. Uh, 
so that the cells just don't die over after a certain amount of time. Um, and and the the particular process that we're talking about, mitophagy, is is really essential for the mitochondria because the mitochondria are getting constantly damaged as they produce ATP. And so if we can, um, and and one of the problems, and we'll get to this, uh, is that as as we get older, this process of mitophagy is not um, can 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 decline basically, and mm-hmm. and can be disturbed not only due to age, but also due to our our general um, yeah lifestyle uh, choice, our activity, our diets, um, and so you know it's all of that is is very important to maintaining the proper bioenergetic function of our cells yeah i i definitely want to excavate all of the uh detrimental behaviors that we engage <laughs> in to uh to downgrade our mitochondrial function and just the our, our ability to produce energy in, um in general i do want to poke at a couple other um, mitochondrial roles, because as we touched on, uh, the mitochondria does produce a certain amount of reactive oxygen species. Um, you know, these uh, highly reactive uh, molecules that can cause damage. But at the same time, at the mitochondrial level, there are there is the production of certain antioxidants um, to balance in in the best of all worlds, the creation of, um, of these reactive oxygen species. So can you talk a little bit about like glutathione and even melatonin at the mitochondrial level and how they work to mitigate the production of free radicals? Well, yeah, I mean, you have, um, as you mentioned, glutathione is, is very important as an antioxidant. It's very, um, it's a very, uh, powerful antioxidant uh, in the cell, and uh, and that's one of uh, one of many antioxidants that are important to keep the the balance of the free radicals and and um, uh, in check, uh, so that you have um, your mitochondria, let's say, stay healthy um, despite all of the stress of creating the ATP uh, along the way. Um, but it's, but they're not enough. They're, and I think that's the, that's the message that you, you know, just by let's say supplementing and and providing more antioxidants, you can't really uh, stall the inevitable, which is the the damaging of the mitochondria, um, just as a normal process in in the day to day, as the cells are functioning. Yeah. So. Just because the history of the mitochondria is so fascinating and interesting, I wonder if you could just spend a couple minutes touching upon how humans and uh, I suppose animal life in general came to co-evolve with these energy-producing organelles. Okay, um... I think that's that's an area okay. where where I, I'd prefer to pass that off to an expert. Um, yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. 
Fair enough. We can even just skirt over it. I I was reading um, something fascinating that Lynn Margulies, who was uh, Carl Sagan's wife, um, and then wrote under the name Lynn Sagan, was the first one to posit the notion that mitochondria actually came from this purple bacteria, um, I think sometime in the 60s. And she wrote a paper on it and no one would publish it. Um, And finally she got it published somewhere after being rejected seven or eight times. And, uh, and, you know, it it postulated this notion that, you know, hey, it, it looks, the mitochondria looks so much like bacteria under a microscope. And, um, and, you know, if you just go on images, you know, on Google images, you sure. can actually, anyone can do it. You can just see, yeah. and there's a, an incredible resemblance, um, you know, between the two. And then, you know, there started to be these other characteristics that they share because the mitochondria actually has some of its own genome. Is that right? Sure. And mitochondria has, does have its own genome, although it, it, uh, there are, uh, proteins that are coming that have uh, that genes also from the cell. So they sort of co um, live together. Uh, and, you know, over time, you know, as you know, as you're, you're mentioning that the mitochondria and the, and our cells, um, you know, there, there was that evolution where, where uh, the mitochondria basically, you know, from the bacteria uh, became, included inside of our cells and played that role of, of generating the ATP and the energy for our cells and also taking in the oxygen. So this coevolution, yeah. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think about, uh, you know, the microbiome, for example, which is such a hot, um, you know, topic. And, um, and of course, when, once we get into our conversations around urolithin A, we will probably circle back to the microbiome because uh, gut bacteria plays a, a, a significant role in the uh, kind of metabolism of certain polyphenols to create um, endogenous urolithin A. But before we get there, you know, I think about the human, what it is to be human. And, um, you know, we really co-evolved with all of this bacteria in our gut. So we're starting to know about that. You know, we've got 39 trillion cells, uh, mostly in our gut, but kind of now we're learning kind of all over um, uh, our body, particularly like in our nose and in our mouth, uh, even on our skin, sure. um, known as the microbiome. So we co-evolved with the, these prokaryotes over here and then we start to learn about the micro or about the mitochondria, which seems to be a bacteria that an archaea tried to eat, but the bacteria <laughs> resisted uh, the digestion of it, and they found some sort of symbiotic relationship, and um, and over time, uh, as the world became more aerobic and there was more oxygen in our atmosphere. Um, it became more viable for these particular, um, uh, you know, single-celled organisms to exist and to create energy, and, and somehow um, they became absolutely uh, critical to 
the expansion of complex life because we just didn't have the ability to make enough energy, um, you know, uh, before the advent of mitochondria. We were simply kind of these single cell organisms or, you know, I guess photosynthesis had started to happen. But, um, but really, it's this incredible uh, endosymbiosis that then gave birth to all of this amazing life that, you know, that we see in the world. So it's amazing. Um, so we know now that mitochondria play key functions. What is mitochondrial dysfunction? And what are some of the components that contribute to that dysfunction? Yeah. So um, at, when we're talking about mitochondrial dysfunction, it, it's really a question of back to energy and, and and the ATP generation. And, and you know, we've, we've looked at this um, clinically uh, where we, we, in uh, with a tool called magnetic resonance spectroscopy and and what it allows you to do is is look at energy production in fact atp levels and so you put a um in in a special magnet you you contract your muscle and you can see the decline in the energy and then when you stop you you can see the return to normal and depending upon the health of the mitochondria this uh, this is quicker or it's slower. And so, um, and it, you know, to, to summarize, uh, depending upon, um, yeah, depending upon your, your condition, you know, and it's even your age, uh, you could have a decline in mitochondrial function and, and that can have, uh, an impact directly on, on limb function, limb muscle function, for example, mobility, and, or other type of function. In fact, there's a number of diseases that are linked to a decline in, in mitochondrial function. And, uh, and one of those is, um, well, is linked is sort of skeletal muscle um, component. Uh, and there's others that are even uh, at, the, at the level of the brain and, and, and brain health as you get older. And um, so, yeah, mito the decline in mitochondrial function is, it can have a number of uh, of negative uh, effects on our on our lives. I uh, recently spoke to a doctor named Chris Palmer out of Harvard who wrote a book called Brain Energy, and fascinating um, book. A and his unified thesis is really that mental disorders are really metabolic disorders at the mitochondrial level. And so essentially, I mean, and it makes some sense. I mean, if, if um, you know, you begin to suffer from some form of neurodegenerative disease, I mean, what you're seeing is, is brain shrinkage and the neurons inability to properly create energy. And so, um, you know, he, his, his thesis is, is fascinating. Um, but, you know, as far as a lot of your work is concerned, I think you guys have focused largely on um, muscle function. And can you talk a little bit about sarcopenia and um, 
some of the detrimental impacts of loss of muscle function? Sure. Um, you know, we did very early on, uh, we conducted a study uh, looking at, um, at a population that are considered pre-frail. And so that's not yet at sarcopenic uh, levels, but it's basically individuals who are starting to have problems stepping, uh, walking, uh, getting out of chairs, um, and general mobility problems. And, and so, uh, and we compared those uh, with a group of age-matched individuals, and this is um, age of around 70 years old, uh, who were athletic and, um, and exercising on a regular basis. And we tried to understand, well, you know, fundamentally what, what is different between in the muscles of these uh, of these two populations. And so we went and we, we ran the study that, that I was referring to uh, earlier with this magnetic resonance spectroscopy. And we saw a decline in the mitochondrial function in the legs of these individuals who, um, yeah, who, who were pre-frail. And then we did, did biopsies and we looked at the biopsies and we saw a decline in the, in the gene expression of mitochondria genes. And uh, showing that there's there's basically um, less mitochondrial biogenesis, which um, translate that means uh, production of mitochondria, sort of a, a regular production of mitochondria, and we saw a decline in in the various um, uh, complexes, uh, com and and this is the mitochondrial complexes, which are important in the um, in the product in the production of ATP. Uh, and so that was one of our, our first observations that, that it's, um, that mitochondria, the decline in mitochondrial function, uh, are, are, is really essential for, um, you know, for healthy, uh, muscle function and, and mobility. And now, now this wasn't sort of a cause and effect study, but it was, it's an observation in this population, uh, that were you know, significantly impaired as, as being pre-frail, that mitochondria, when, when looking at comparing them with uh, healthy, that mitochondria gene set was one of those leading gene sets that jumped out as being, uh, as being impaired. And, and when you think of, um, uh, now we haven't looked at sarcopenia. Sarcopenia is, uh, is, is taking it another step where you're looking at, um, the amount of muscle mass um, and how that declines with time. And so uh, sarcopenia is where there's, there's been more muscle mass loss. So it's not only a, a loss of function, but also a loss of mass. Um, but I think that, and there's, and there's always been um, a historically an approach when you have a decline in muscle mass that you, you try and increase the muscle mass, which, is, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, but then you need to make sure that that increased muscle mass is also very functional. And so, uh, and it's not easy to increase muscle mass is certainly as you, as you get older. Uh, and that's, that's one of the challenges. Um, and, uh, although I have seen some people recently who are in their late seventies and who are, uh, who have lots of muscle and I, and I just as, uh, super impressive. I don't know how they do that. Um, but, um, but yeah, when you're, um, you know, when you're having uh, whatever amount of muscle you have, you want to make sure that it's basically functioning at its peak. And I think that's, that's really where the mitochondria comes in. If you can take, you know, your muscle cells, um, 
even in a sarcopenic uh, uh, individual who has had a decline in their muscle mass and make them function better, then the muscle at itself uh, should function better. And so that was that's one of our um, you know underlying uh, you know approaches uh, to improving muscle function. It's by acting on at that level of the mitochondria and basically optimizing uh, the bioenergetics of your cells, uh, you know, no matter what the sort of age you are or what, uh, what the statuses of your tissue are, whether they're, you know, you have large muscles, whether you have small muscles to try and, and sort of raise the functionality um, across, across everything. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, you, you guys are doing, uh, like muscle biopsy. Um, are there simpler kind of more subjective measures of poor mitochondrial health that, that one, you know, might just discern on their own? For example, you know, it is chronic fatigue or brain fog, you know, a ref, a reflection of mitochondrial dysfunction or. I don't know, like grip strength or well, your walking well, it, gait or whatever. Yeah, so there's a there's a lot of um, so mitochondria function uh, is is really linked to uh, physiological performance. So you can screen people for um, for performance using different types of measurements, and and we spoke about um, walking speed. Uh, there's the um, uh, there's there's tests that allow you to uh, to screen for uh, people uh, who are uh, let's say pre-frail or or more frail by just the you know the the six minute walk is a is a common one how how far can people walk in in six minutes uh, there's there's also um, uh, different uh, measurements like getting them on a on a bicycle uh, for example and and seeing what um, you know, what their performance is on a bicycle, uh, and that's this is this is non uh, not more non invasive uh, way, of course, <laughs> to to screen than yeah. than uh, biopsies, and and there is this the overall energy level too. You know, there's uh, you know we think oh you know we're uh, our, our general energy level is is linked to fundamentally the energy level of, of our cells in our body. Right. And so if we have, if our cells aren't and the mitochondria are functioning well, uh, you know, you, you can't expect your energy level to be very high. So, and, and you were also speaking earlier about, um, you know, brain, uh, function. There's been, in addition to, you know, memory and, and these types of cognitive effects, there's been, uh, links to stress on uh, and and the importance of properly functioning mitochondria uh, for you know to help resist stress that you might uh, have. So yeah, there's a number of different ways that you might feel uh, a change in your mitochondrial function, even when you're uh, exercising. You know how easy is it for you to recover uh, after post exercise? Yeah. So you mentioned stress as a contributing factor to mitochondrial dysfunction. What are some of the other prevalent contributing factors that cause your mitochondria to dysfunction? Yeah. So um, in, in addition to 
in addition to stress, uh, I, I would say that uh, you know aging is one of the primary uh, drivers of mitochondrial dysfunction, just generally speaking. And and one of the reasons is that as you get older, this process that we were talking about before, called mitophagy, uh, actually declines, and so the the cleanup of your damaged mitochondria is is slower and and consequently you have you know more damaged mitochondria accumulating inside of your cells and so generally speaking on a on a whole your cells aren't aren't functioning uh at their peak and uh but then there's also lifestyle choices it's known um that when you exercise that this is stimulating a process uh, of mitophagy as well, and so you'll see a lot of um, you'll, you'll see mitochondrial biogenesis if you take biopsies in uh, in people who are exercising regularly. You'll see a uh, an elevated level of uh, mitochondrial uh, biogenesis and this creation of of, of new uh, functioning mitochondria versus uh, those people who have a more sedentary lifestyle. And you know, it, and you'll see less of that going on. And so, so in general, if you were to you know look at those having a sedentary lifestyle versus a, a very active and fit lifestyle, the the mitochondria are, are going to be much more active uh, in in those and and much more functioning in those people who are who are active. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So exercise versus sedentariness plays a, a big role there. What about sleep? That's a good question. I, I'm not really familiar with the impact of sleep on mitochondrial function, but I, I would say that there's, um, you know, one thing that we have to think about when we're, when we're sleeping, that there is this, this whole aspect of um, dietary uh, restriction and, and fasting and fasting is another element that is uh, stimulating uh, mitophagy uh, and and keeping our mitochondria healthy. And so uh, this and and you can when you look at the uh, the profiles, the the genetic uh, profiles in, in terms of on the muscle cells and on other cells when they're when they're fasted, you see an upregulation of uh, mitochondria biogenesis as well and an improvement in mitochondrial function so it, it mm -hmm. would be um it would be logical to think that if you're if you're sleeping for a longer period of time and getting um, more restful sleep that you're probably um, uh, favoring a better mitochondrial profile inside of your cells yeah i mean i uh, leveraged the 16-8 intermittent fasting protocol uh uh most of the time, uh, although okay. we just finished a very busy holiday season, I, I can't say that I was <laughs> fundamental, fundamentally strict uh, over that period. Um, but yeah, if you use you know your sleep window to chalk up, let's say eight hours of of fasting, um, you know it certainly makes uh, you know the other eight hours or however many hours you end up. Um, fasting, you know, a, a lot easier. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, there is a component here of, um, fasting, uh, stimulating certain cellular pathways like AMPK is one, for example, 
that then triggers kind of this cell repair process autophagy and mitophagy. Um, it also seems like sleep has some relationship to insulin sensitivity and poor sleep seems to contribute to insulin resistance. Um, and so I just kind of want to touch on that for a second, you know, as it pertains to diet and lifestyle. So, you know, obviously there's this kind of standard American diet, which is very high in refined sugars and refined grains and starches and ultra processed foods that is contributing to high blood glucose levels and then kind of down the line, yeah. insulin resistance, which has an impact on our mitochondria's ability to create energy. Is that right? Yes. I mean, it's these, these diets, uh, as you were referring to are, are really not optimal to, for your, for your, not only for your body, but for your general metabolism for, and for your, um, for your mitochondria, uh, function. Um, and you know, and it, it's not only the, the, what we would assume is, is logical that, that these types of diets aren't good for you, but there are, there are foods that you can take that are beneficial for your mitochondria. And, and I think that's, um, that's where we should be thinking of how can we change our diet or incorporate things into our diet that are going to be, you know, helpful to, to help maintain that, you know, an optimal functioning of your mitochondria uh, and, you know, and eventually stimulate this process of mitophagy. Yeah, exactly. So this is the good news. This is the gospel. Yeah. We've, we've covered a lot of the, uh, the bad news um, and all of the different components to dysfunction. But the good news is that our body has adaptive mechanisms that under the right circumstances can stimulate processes like mitophagy or, you know, what you referred to mitobiogenesis, the creation of actual new mitochondria um, in the cell, which is good news. Um, and just as more kind of generally as it pertains to metabolism, you can increase your insulin sensitivity. You can, you know, reverse insulin resistant and become more metabolically flexible. So there's all these, a tons of different things that one can do. Um, and some of that you already mentioned. So there was, you know, exercise and fasting, but maybe you want to touch on, you know, some of the foods and, and their constituents that can uh, help trigger some of these healthful uh, processes. Sure, Jeff. So one of the, what we've been looking at, um, we started looking at the um, pomegranate uh, uh, quite a, a number of years ago. Uh, and one of, the, one of the types of compounds, it's actually a class of compounds that's found inside of the pomegranate is the, are the elagitanins. And and these are larger compounds, phytochemicals um, that are found not only in the pomegranate, but they're found in various uh, nuts and berries. And essentially what happens is that when you consume them, that they're digested um, in the stomach and then they're processed in the intestine by, by gut bacteria. We were talking about the importance of microflora earlier. And if you have those right gut bacteria, 
these compounds, these elagitans, are processed into a, a postbiotic uh, that is called urolithin A. And, uh, and we've spent a lot of time now studying urolithin A uh, and uh, together with uh, uh, a number of collaborators at, um, at, at Scientific Institute here, uh, the EPFL, uh, as well as other institutes. And, and what we've shown is that uh, this postbiotic, uh, urolithin A, it can stimulate this process called mitophagy. And so this is pretty exciting because this is something that's coming from the foods we eat, uh, and it has this potential to interact at the cellular level and, and basically help reduce the and reverse the decline of mitochondrial function that happens naturally and, and boost by boosting this level of, of recycling uh, the damaged mitochondria. Uh, and so, so we've spent a lot of time uh, studying this and 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 yeah, and so this is this is something um, I think that it'd be very pertinent uh, for people to take. It's the the first um, and to my knowledge the only nutrient that that is actually stimulating uh, this process of mitophagy uh, when consumed orally. Mm, it's fascinating, uh, and I'm so curious to know how you landed on pomegranates. But I just want to make sure that. That I understand the uh, the mechanism of action here. So, mm -hmm. if you consume uh, exogenously, like um, pomegranates, um, and we can talk maybe about the particular the the part of the pomegranate that, sure. that has the elagitannin compounds, but yeah. also maybe raspberries. I think walnuts and pecans maybe have yeah, elagitannins exactly. as well. And they go through the nor normal prod, uh, process of digestion, but some of that goes into the lower, the essentially your colon, your large intestine, yeah. and gets metabolized by certain strains of bacteria, um, and 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 postbiotics or metabolites are produced by that bacteria. Yes. to produce this compound called urolithin A that seems to have a really, really positive effect on mitochondria and, as you say, mitophagy. Is that a general understanding of what's happening? Yes, it's, it's quite a, you know, as you, as you say, it's, 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 quite a, uh, it's quite a pathway, it's quite a process to, <laughs> from the foods that you take right. to actually getting this, uh, this compound. Yeah, um, that says nothing of, of actually getting into your car and driving to the farmer's market to get the walnuts in the first place or exactly. the pomegranates exactly. or to grow them. Um, so is there a particular bacterial strain or species in the gut that, that synthesizes urolithin A or do we even know what, what that might be or is you it a... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's very interesting. We, you know, we've looked at this over the years and, and it's very, it's very complicated to, um, to basically isolate, uh, the right strains that can, uh, perform this conversion. Uh, and there's been a couple of groups out there that have, um, that have postulated that some, some strains that could be, uh, acting on it, but, um, it's been yet to, to sort of single out an, uh, a, an individual strain that will 
perform this activity. And it's probably due to a combination of bacterial strains that are that are playing different roles in terms of the the chemical modifications, uh, because it's not simply um, uh, it's creating something, but it's take it's starting have a starting compound that's coming in and it's being chemically modified, and and you're having different modifications, um, and so this is uh, makes it a little bit more tricky. I've got to retrain my reductionist Newtonian brain. <laughs> I always want to know, like, what is the specific, you know, bacterial species that, you know, metabolizes <laughs> allagitanins into urolithinase? You're, you're absolutely right. It rarely works that way. It's just, you know, these bacteria are working within a mosaic and a matrix, and it's it's probably very difficult to put your thumb exactly on the process. I mean, uh, I assume, though, in general, people have to have a, a very healthy uh, gut microflora to be able to create, you know, this postbiotic. And, and probably not everybody has the ability to to synthesize urolithin A at the gut level. Yeah, you're right, Jeff, that we, we actually conducted a clinical study um, a couple of years ago uh, in, in Chicago where we uh, had people take uh, pomegranate juice uh, and consume a glass of pomegranate juice, and we monitored their ability to uh, basically produce uh, urolithin A. And we took mm. um, you know blood samples, and we measured urolithin A in those in those samples. And and essentially, what we saw was that only about thirty to forty percent of the population was able to uh, produce measurable amounts of urolithin A, uh, and and so uh, they were measurable, but they weren't um, based on other work we've done. They they weren't at at the level that you would need to actually have the benefits that we see with uh, urolithin A when it's administered in a in a more direct form, direct manner. So it, yeah, it's, that, that's it, interesting. Yeah, and, so, and then, so the, you, and then yeah. Go sorry ahead. to, to interrupt, interrupt, but I think one of the challenges also with taking pomegranate juice is just the high amount of sugar. And, and during that study, we, we compared the amount of urolithin A that you get into the body uh, with a glass of pomegranate juice um, versus directly administering 500 milligrams of, of urolithin A. And what we saw was that you needed basically six times more uh, pomegranate juice. So you, you you basically need to have about six glasses of juice uh, to get the same levels uh, as directly administering. So it's not an effective way um, to get what you need uh, to give you those benefits. Yeah, it sounds like it might make you pre-diabetic in the meantime too. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, exactly. I wear a, I wear a CGM, and I can only imagine what six glasses of, of pomegranate juice uh, would do to my levels app. Um, but uh, so I think that's fascinating. So really, only thirty percent or forty percent of the people could can even synthesize urolithin A uh, from uh, the elagitanin, um, uh, even in the best case scenario, and, and you know, potentially that points to people's compromised gut flora, but it's also maybe just bioindividualities. You know, some people just don't have the ability to uh, generate certain compounds. Um, 
also, uh, you know, I suppose when you're drinking the pomegranate juice, you're really it, it, through the process of, of processing a, a pomegranate, you're really just you're losing uh, a lot of the the white pulpy uh, part of the pomegranate. And is that where you find most of the elagitanin or? Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's back to, you know, your point of where, where are the origins uh, sort of uh, located inside of the pomegranate? I mean, you have your, your arrows uh, that are bright red, and then you have this sort of yellow whitish membrane that, that sort of surround and, and all of those. And, and, and it's really this yellow whitish membrane that's very bitter when you, taste it that contains all of these elagitanins. I, I don't encourage you to, to bite in and chew some of that because it's not enjoyable at all. Uh, but in the process of, uh, of basically making pomegranate juice and compressing the pomegranate, you, you, know, you squeeze out uh, these elagitanins from uh, this yellow membrane and that goes into the juice. And uh, and so then you are able to consume it. And so we've we've actually um, measured levels of elagitanins and and juices and and some commercial juices and and they do seem to be pretty consistent. So there is a, a very consistent processing of of the juice, although it's um, yeah it doesn't give you enough and you, and you and you still have that whole process that we discussed of of converting the elagitanins into uh, urolithin A and then having that actually get absorbed into the body. So you've been able to synthesize a kind of pure urolithin A um, yes. compound. And I'm curious, how, how do you actually do that? I, I don't assume that you have a, a bunch of Petri dishes with bacteria in them. <laughs> feeding them elagitanins. Um, so is there a process in, in the lab by which you create pure urolithin A? Yeah, so it's a very, um, it's a very clean process. It, it's uh, industrially uh, uh, sort of similar to a way like a vitamin C would be manufactured. So it, this, is, this is using um, a synthetic chemistry where we make a product that is uh, ultra pure, so um, likely much purer than you would be able to purify out if you were to to try and extract uh, urolithin A from um, yeah from some type of a of a fluid, for example, uh, a body fluid. You know, after you you would produce that normally. Uh, so yeah, that's um, and it's and the nice thing is that you know you you have that that you can then uh, you know, tighter out into very specific doses. Uh, right. And then you can analyze the impact of specific doses on, on mitochondria uh, orally. And so that's what we've been doing. Hmm. And what is the proper dosage um, that you would recommend for the MitoPure product? Yeah. So, um, so the product that we're selling is is MitoPure, which is our proprietary urolithin A, uh, and the the dose is 500 milligrams, uh, and that's sort of the starting dose. We've we've done a, a couple of studies now. Um, actually, we've done uh, three double-blind placebo-controlled studies with uh, with MitoPure, uh, and uh, what we've shown is that 
at 500 milligrams, we can see that that benefit on the mitochondria function, uh, and that we also see uh, benefit on muscle uh, functionality. And so we've looked at uh, we've had one our very first study we we looked at 500 milligrams and a gram after a month, and what we saw was an improvement. And this is through uh, biomarkers. Uh, we were speaking about muscle biopsies. We looked at uh, muscle biopsies before and after uh, taking our product for a month. And what we saw was an, an increase in uh, gene expression of mitochondrial uh, genes uh, and sort of a gene set um, that uh, that's an enriched process. So it's what they call a, a mitochondria gene set. So it's a number of genes that's involved in the normal mitochondrial um, yeah, health and 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 functioning and and you see all of these genes uh upregulated and together they have the uh, uh the combined effect of of improving and increasing the um the mitochondria uh, gene set and enriching that inside of the cell and so that was one of our our very first studies uh and then the second study we conducted was in um in individuals who were 40 to 65 years old and who were sedentary uh, and had a little bit more over overweight. Um, uh, and so uh, we looked after four months. This is the first time that we we actually investigated the effect of urolithne on a physiological endpoint. And so we looked at uh, the muscle function after four months and we saw an improvement in leg muscle strength by uh, by over 10%. Uh, and those people who were taking 500 milligrams and 1,000 milligrams, and and at the higher dose, we were we were beginning to see some effects on uh, VO2 peak and um, yeah, and even on six-minute walk. Uh, so, uh, and we were also we continue to to run these other studies where we these other uh, biomarkers, as I mentioned, the biopsies, and also uh, looking at uh, uh, basically blood uh, biomarkers that you'd find in the plasma. And so what what we've consistently seen is that uh, when we look at biopsies, we see a, an improvement in uh, mitochondria uh, function through this, this gene set enrichment of mitochondrial genes. Uh, and we, in terms of biomarkers, we, we also see an impact on biomarkers, particularly um, acylcarnitin and acylcarnitin mm -hmm. basically is downregulated, uh, and and that's what we see sort of when we compare the before and after uh, snapshots in individuals who've been taking urolithin A. And uh, and so this is this has been shown in the past that people who have uh, more of an impaired mitochondria uh, function that they have uh, elevated acylcarnitin levels because this is part of the the whole metabolism process of the cell uh in terms of uh consuming those acylcarnitins mm, mm, fascinating and at this juncture do you understand the mechanism of action of urolithin a at the mitochondrial level i mean certainly you guys have been uh unbelievable in terms of your commitment to clinical research and to you know, creating a, a a 
product that's been validated by science, but I wonder if you actually understand at what the mechanism of action is at the mitochondrial level. I mean, what is this urolithin A compound actually doing? Do we know? <laughs> well, it, it's uh, it's just it's a good question, uh, Jeff, um, that we are uh, hard at work on, and mm-hmm. and uh, I think your question alludes to sort of what is the what are the molecular interactions of urolithin A in inside of the cell, and <clears throat> what are the cascade of events that that occur that leads to um, mitophagy. And and what we can say is one of the ways we look at um, mitophagy and, and sort of uh, determine that there's mitophagy happening inside of the cell is one of, of many, but it, it's, it's looking at uh, ubiquitinization of your uh, of your mitochondria. And so basically what happens is that your mitochondria get, um, when they're damaged and they're targeted for this uh, process of mitophagy, they they're become sort of decorated with ubiquitin. And this, is, this targets the uh, mitochondria uh, mm. to that pathway. Uh, and we are, and with regards to all of the other sort of processes that are involved, um, from the urolithin A arriving to the cell to that, we are, we are still working hard at that. There's, in fact, you know, this is, uh, this whole process of, um, mitophagy, this is, this is relatively, um, new over the last 10 years that people have been working on mitophagy and, and, uh, it's an, it's a pretty new field, um, with a lot of really you know, smart academic groups uh, working on it and, and trying to uh, understand what are the different ways um, of mitophagy. And, and I think one of the, you know, one of the reasons that um, we think that we've been uh, rather successful in our stimulation of mitophagy is that it's, um, it's a gentle stimulation because there's, there are other pathways that are, um, that are more, that are stronger and and the fact that we're dealing with uh, urolithin A, which is is, is basically a, this nutrient that's been in our that we've been exposed to since the dawn of time, um, this is very very safe. And you know, you're there, there's no um, you know there's there's no risks associated with it, which which make it so that you know it's. It is having this gentle but yet potent effect on, on our cells, um, and yeah, we will we will see more in the future as we continue our uh, our research along that way. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that the risk profile is very low, no side effects, but you know, you guys have also been uh, stringent in terms of um, going through all the processes and the GRAS. Uh, process and and, yeah. and all of that. So uh, so you guys uh, and also I'll just mention I think you guys um, have been around as a company uh, since 2007 doing yes, yes. clinical research. So this is hardly a a product that's just gotten like thrown on to the shelves on a whim. <laughs> this is no. a a product of 15 years uh, of research, which is uh, admirable. 
Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, it, I think, and as you say, it, it's something that we've we've worked on on a preclinical and a clinical uh, manner for for over these last fifteen years. And you know, this is I think what what we've taken is more of a, a traditional um, a biotech uh, mentality of let's raise the the bar in terms of. Uh, the level of validation that you need uh, and the science uh, and because it's really fundamentally um, it it's the science that's that should be driving the effects of of any type of nutritional supplements that you take and we want everybody to be comfortable that the science is rock solid and so we've really um, we've really made that effort to to create um, you know, great clinical studies. As I mentioned before, our clinical studies are are all double blind, placebo controlled studies, and um, yeah, and we've published them in all leading uh, academic journals um, that are out there. So uh, this is, I think, this is important for for anybody working in this space to to stay at this level of rigor. Let's talk maybe a little bit about delivery. Um, I do actually have, uh, first of all, I might also say that the the packaging uh, is exquisite. You guys did an absolutely beautiful job. So I, I have Thank here you. for those um, who are watching this on YouTube and not um, just listening to the audio, I have like one of the packages here that I was lucky enough to receive. So this, this one is um, 500 milligrams of uh, kind of like a, a powder, right? That just gets, um, you know, you yeah. can, well, for me, I just put it in a glass of water and it's, it's, uh, it tastes good, but it's relatively innocuous. It's not yeah. a, it's not a strong flavor per se. Um, but uh, I, I also know that there's a, a capsule version, I believe. And then um, I did actually try the, the shake version, um, okay. which I actually quite enjoyed. Um, a sort of a protein um, concoction there yeah. with whey protein, I believe. But it was I, I, it was very good. I actually did it yesterday before my my um, resistance training, and uh, and it had the it was great. Yeah. So we, I mean, we've as as you mentioned, um, Jeff. We've you know our our thought was you know it's it's important to take this in the morning, and and most people have a a ritual around their breakfast time. And so we wanted, when we started uh, and we launched uh, with the product that you just showed, which is this uh, berry powder, berry flavored powder. And we wanted people to have a, a, a food experience basically that they could control and uh, depending upon their, um, yeah, their, their preferences. Um, if they, you know, you can mix it into a yogurt. Uh, you can also mix this into your favorite smoothie. Um, but the idea was let's take, you know, let's give people an opportunity to take a, a nutrition product as something other than a pill. And so that's why we introduced this product. And we all, we've also introduced um, soft gels as well. And we have the, um, and we have this, uh, the protein shake, which has 20 grams of of whey protein uh, that that you were mentioning, which yeah, I take that. I took that just the other day too. It's it's great, um, tastes great, and um, yeah, and 
and in addition to that, we've um, we've recently uh, taken a look at other delivery op, uh, ways for uh, urolithin A, and uh, and this is um, more um, not ingestible but more topical. And so mm. we've come up with um, you know, and this was a thought we had uh, a few years ago of you know what, what would be the impact when applying this directly on the skin. Um, and because our skin is the largest organ of our body, as, as we all know, and, and, uh, it, it has cells and, and, in it's, um, yeah, it's influenced by, you know, our natural aging, our sort of, uh, intrinsic aging of our cells, as well as these extrinsic effects or, or, you know, just sunlight that we're exposed to, uh, that cause photo aging. And so, uh, we embarked on exploring, you know, how can urolithin A potentially counter uh, intrinsic and intrinsic, extrinsic aging. And so we've, um, this last year, we, we ran some studies on that as well. And what we, we saw is that we have an impact on, uh, also on, um, on both forms of aging when applied topically. So we see mm -hmm. that, you know, following UV uh, irradiation and, and application of uh, of Mitopure and, and our timeline formula, uh, that we see a, a reduction in, in inflammation, and we've also seen uh, basically a, a reduction in, in wrinkles um, mm. as well uh, when it combined in our our formula. And so we we decided to introduce that um, just recently. And so that was launched just at the end of this last year. And we just started shipping that in the US. Oh, wow. Uh, I wasn't aware of that. So is that um, in the form of a balm or a lotion or how does one apply urolithin A topically? <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a cream. And so we, cream. Have, um, we have a, a cream that is... Uh, we have a day cream, we have a night cream, and and we have a serum, uh, and uh, and so that's you know applied in the morning, it's applied at night, uh, and so yeah, so allowing you to get the same um, your cells to get the same benefits and energize your cells, even mm. from the outside. Amazing, and and it still has the same bioavailability or or enough bioavailability to be impactful. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah. what, what we've, we've measured, uh, we focused on, on, um, measuring, uh, basically endpoints that are, are visible like, like wrinkles and, mm. um, you know, which is what people are looking at when they look in the mirror and, uh, and, and also, uh, looking at inflammation, uh, following exposure to UV light. So, um, yeah, we've, you know, we're, we were glad to see that, that these benefits um, continuing uh, when applied topically. Yeah. So just back to the ingestible product for a second. So, yeah. so let's say, um, you know, I get on my routine and I'm taking 500 milligrams per day. How long does it take in terms of duration to actually see an effect? You know, in our, um, in our latest clinical study, uh, where we were looking in, in individuals over um, 65, uh, what we saw was that after two months, we saw an improvement in, uh, in muscle endurance in both the um, 
the hand muscle. So this sort of first interosseous muscle, which is the muscle you use when you're opening jars and, and those types of things. And then also in the leg muscle. So we looked at, we looked at a very targeted uh, endurance of those muscles, leg muscle and, and the, uh, and the hand muscle. And, uh, and after two months of taking the product, we say a uh, significant improvement there. And, um, and then in terms of, I think I was mentioning before the, the, the other study um, that were in a uh, population of 40 to 65, these, uh, these individuals uh, saw improvement. We only measured after four months and, uh, and this, we saw an improvement of 10, uh, greater than 10% uh, muscle strength improvement after that time in the Got lungs. It. Nice. So this is not something that, you know, you're just going to take one day and expect to see like an immediate change in, in subjective yeah um, it's no it's it's a, it's not a stimulant and i think that's right. that's important it's not like taking um I mean, when we think of energy you think of caffeine <laughs> right. uh and which is sort of that instant stimulus and uh we like to think of this more like energy 2.0 uh, that you're you're fundamentally changing your your cells and and what's happening inside the cells and and those mitochondria are, are being optimized and, and that takes time, you know, biology takes time, the cells need to improve and then the cells, you know, interact with one another. And then you, you know, and all of that together takes time. And I think the, you know, an easy way to think about, you know, how, how long does it take to see an effect when you go into the gym and you exercise, <laughs> uh, you know, how, how how many gym sessions do you need before you start to see an improvement in terms of your muscle strength and your muscle performance it's not just go to the gym one one time you have to do it on a consistent basis right well but we live in a culture that wants immediate results right so <laughs> but i think uh you know any of us who have committed um to a health journey or any journey i mean a learning journey for example um you know, you don't just build new neural networks, you know, overnight. It's a, it's a process of right. continuing to, to stay committed, um, to, uh, to whether that's, you know, learning how to play the piano or upgrading your mitochondrial function or hypertrophizing your biceps. So, <laughs> um, uh, but you know, you guys have just done a, just such an exemplary job on, on all fronts. Um, and, uh, you know, you've really taken your time, um, you've done the research, you've packaged up just, as I said, a, a beautifully presented product and, um, and, uh, you know, now you're really, um, helping, uh, upgrade a lot of people's lives because, uh, as we touched on earlier in the conversation, what are we, if we are not energy, um, right. really at the core of what is what it's like to be alive is to create and burn energy. Um, so uh, you've gone right to the, uh, uh, you know, to the, to the origin of the whole thing here. Yeah. Well, thank you, uh, Jeff. Yeah. We're, you know, we're really excited that, you know, obviously when we started the company, it was hard to anticipate how things would evolve and, um, but with urolithin A, you know, we see this impact, uh, 
you know, with all of, you know, we get so many, um, so much feedback from our customers uh, and, and, and impacts on, on different aspects of their life. I mean, it, it tends to be more energy and, and muscle focused, um, but, but it's different for each person in that some people are mountain climbers and they, you know, and they swear by it when they're, you know, when, when they climbed Mount Everest, you know, we had somebody who climbed Mount Everest and, and, uh, sent us a picture of him on, uh, on the top of Mount Everest with our package. And we said, is this, is this real? And, and, and the guy's wonderful and, you know, has been very careful in monitoring all of his, the improvements that he experienced when taking the product. And then we have people who are cyclists, um, and, uh, people who are runners, uh, and, you know, and, and other, you know, whether it's, uh, professional or, or just amateur athletes uh, or just, you know, normal non-athletic people, we've seen a, a lot of, uh, and heard about a lot of benefits. And so I think that's, what's rewarding to us is to being able to, to create something that people are feeling, uh, a benefit about. And I know, you know, everybody here at, you know, a timeline is, you know, is really dedicated to that as a mission. Yeah. So where can one avail oneself of the Mighty Pure uh, timeline product? Because as I understand it, is a, is it only a direct to consumer uh, offering or where are you guys with that? Yeah, it, we are, um, we sell online on timelinenutrition.com. Uh, and, uh, if you go onto our website, you can have access to all of our um, all of our nutrition products, as well as um, the topical products. We're we're also providing sort of nutrition to your skin uh, yeah. as well. So love uh, it, yeah. All right, well, Chris, it's been a, a delight uh, to get schooled in the mitochondria and uh, and the different uh, things that we can do to upregulate. Um, our mitochondrial function, and specifically the MitoPure product in, in Urolithin A. It's just fascinating. We're on the cusp of this new frontier where we can have a lot of agency over our own health. Um, you know, I, I talked to my dad, and he's 80, well, he'll be 81 next week. And, you know, his relationship with health was, you know, for most of his life was just going to see his primary care physician once a year and, you know, take a battery of tests and be like, okay, yeah, you're fine. You know, move along. <laughs> you know, that's it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and boy, things have really, really changed. And, uh, there's so much, there's so many tools, there's so much data, uh, available now for people to really become, you know, the CEO of their own healthcare and, uh, and you're playing a huge part of, uh, in that. So thanks for all the work that you're doing. Thank, thank you, Jeff, for having me. And it's, uh, and it's great to, um, yeah, it's great to be able to, to contribute in this way. And, um, we hope that people can benefit from your A and, and that it will help, uh, them all reach their own, uh, health objectives, uh, as they, as they work on them and, and try and optimize their own nutrition. Nice. Well, to be continued, I'll see you in Topanga, I hope, sometime in the near future. I hope so. Thanks so much, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chris.
Thank you for listening to my conversation with Chris Wrench, developer of MitoPure, a supplement that improves mitochondrial health, muscle strength, and endurance in humans. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort we put into the show's creation, and we really do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll get access to more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, and you can check it out for 14 days for free, no strings attached, at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly with questions, suggestions, criticism of the constructive variety at Jeff K at onecommune.com. Lastly, and not leastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week over week, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.